Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And on the program this time, some more evidence that the military services really are making some progress on speeding up their security authorization processes for IT systems. As we've talked about before on this program, the Navy has some big ambitions to change the way it delivers software to the fleet under the banner of an initiative called Compile to Combat in 24 Hours. Obviously, that 24-hour goal only works if those new capabilities can make their way through the government's risk management framework much more quickly than they do today. That security approval piece is what the Navy's trying to tackle with a new process called RAISED, similar to some of the efforts that are underway in the Army and the Air Force. The goal is to streamline and simplify the RMF process, move away from a compliance-based check-the-box mindset. Our guest to talk about RAISED is Captain Susan Breyer Joyner. She's the Cybersecurity Branch Director in the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare. Captain, thanks for doing this, and and I'd like to start fairly basic here. Our listeners and readers have heard about Compile to Combat in 24 Hours and, and some of the other work the Navy has been doing generally to, to speed up the development process and accelerate the process of getting IT capability out to the fleet in, in a quicker way. But but tell us how RAISED fits in to that specifically, Compile to Combat in 24 Hours, and and, and, and why you're undertaking this, this whole effort as a general matter. So the CNO and Don CIO are really encouraging and driving the Navy to leverage the power of networks, cloud computing, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. These are all technologies that once we figure out how to incorporate them into our daily processes are going to accelerate our ability to respond quickly to emerging threats. So there's an urgency from my perspective that we've got to be able to authorize the resulting capabilities in a timely manner in order to avoid impeding delivery to the fleet. So the RAISE process is actually, uh, it stands for the Rapid Assess and Incorporate Software Engineering in a Day. And ultimately, it's a critical enabler of the compile to combat in 24 hours because if we cannot authorize or certify the software in a timely manner, then we're not we're never going to be able to get to that very rapid deployment cycle. And so we are focusing on how the risk mitigation framework can support that compile to combat in 24 hours. This is actually part of a much larger effort where across Navy, we are looking to transform our implementation of RMF to make it more automated, more user-centric, more transparent than it is today, and provide a better understanding of risk to commanders so they can have better informed decisions uh, regarding cost trade-offs and risk being accepted. Yeah, and and maybe before we get too much deeper into RAISED itself, we we should talk a little bit about RMF more generally. Um, It seems like all the services really are coming to a point now where everybody's starting to get their arms around how to use RMF in a faster, more agile way. But, But I think for the last few years, everybody's kind of struggled, and it's actually made things harder and lengthier to get through the approval process. Is, is, is that fair to say in the Navy's case? I think it's fair to say in the Navy's case and in talking with my counterparts in the other services, I think the real struggle has been cultural. 
because you went from DICAP, which was very much a compliance-based approach to the risk mitigation framework, which is more of a risk management approach. And so less about checking the boxes and more about understanding residual risk to the system, what measures you have in place to help prevent the risk from being exploited, and what Intel is telling us about what the actual threat is. And that is a large cultural shift when you're talking about not just the security practitioners having to understand it, but down to the program manager, information systems, security engineer level. And I think that's accounted for a lot of the challenges that we've all faced in moving to this new approach. Yeah, and I think the common theme I'm hearing from, from everybody is that there's there's now a realization, and it, it's not like this just happened, but, but over recent years that you don't treat all risks vulnerabilities, security controls equally. Some are more equal than others, right? Some are first among their peers. And it's an important distinction because I've been doing security for over 28 years now. And there is absolutely no way in this contested environment that we can afford to protect 100% of our assets 100% of the time. And so as good stewards of taxpayers' dollars, we really have to look at what is the mission criticality of the system that we're considering? What is the probability of the threat being able to exploit any residual vulnerabilities? I would consider it a maturation of our approach to risk management, not necessarily indicating that we were doing poorly in the past, but as we've learned more and our capabilities have become more advanced over the years, we can take a more nuanced view as we are looking to um, protect and defend our systems. Okay. I, I think that helps in terms of setup. So let's 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 transition a little bit to, to the raised process. It's it's still kind of awaiting approval, I think, and the, the, the framework is going to be available to the entire Navy later this year to start using. But but in general, how's it going to work? In general the raised process is relying upon the program manager or the software developer to operate in a well-defined environment, one that we understand what controls are being inherited. It's very well-defined, and the software is what I would characterize as well-behaved. It does not try and take actions that are outside of the restrictions of the C2, C24 environment. And so RAISED is specific to a float development. We are looking to take what we learned from this initiative and apply it to other agile software development that we have in moving towards the cloud, whether it's JEDI or MillCloud or any of our other cloud-like environments of float. Um, how, how do you determine whether an application is, is well-behaved enough to work in this process in the first place? There's a checklist. <laughs> of course there is. Uh, of course there is. So this is part of, as, as we were looking to identify candidates to take through the testing of this process, we had to make sure that, one, they were in an environment that was already authorized for use. In other words, we're just trying to prove out the software authorization piece of it. So the environment itself already had to be authorized. 
we had to have a well-defined set of security controls for the software to inherit. And the development process of the software itself has to have the appropriate feedback loops during development to incorporate security validation in each one of its steps. What What is that infrastructure slash development environment that, that you're inheriting those authorizations from? I mean, it sounds like from what you said earlier, in the future, it might be Jedi or another cloud environment, but for the afloat environment, what are you inheriting from? For the afloat environment, we are specifically looking at ACS as part of Canes. Yeah, and real quickly, just for our listeners, a, a couple acronyms there. So Canes is the consolidated network the Navy's already set up for the whole afloat environment um, already running on all the ships. And ACS is Agile Core Services, right, which is kind of a collection of, of building blocks the Navy's been using to move toward Agile software development. There we go. And it provides platform as a service. So this really tra- starts to get to the cloud-like construct that we're aiming for in the future. Do you have any sense yet of, well, I, let me back up a second. What 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 is the sort of timeline look like right now for getting authorization and approval for a new application that you want to deploy out to that afloat environment? And what's kind of the 2B state that you're hoping for with Raised? So the current process can take anywhere between 13 and 18 months in order to get a newly developed application out to the fleet. And I'm going to caveat my second part of the answer by saying there's two phases. So at least initially, we think it's going to take about six months for the first authorization of a type of application. But then iteratively after that, we anticipate as short as a week, and our target is to 24 hours. It's a crawl, walk, run scenario where if we can get it from 18 months down to six months, that's a win, but it's still not fast enough. We know that. And so we're going to continue to work to automate the process. And and really, that's where we're going to see the greatest increase in speed is when we figure out what portions of this authorization process we can automate so the data automatically feeds from step to step. And that piece of it we have not codified yet. So we know the information we want to go from step one to two to three to four, but we have not yet figured out how we're going to automate the transition of the data and the particular approvals as we walk our way through. I want to return to automation in a minute, but but just, you know, as, as this begins to roll out, six months is a lot better, obviously, than, than what you've got now, but it's still not great. Why, why, is, why are you planning for so much time in there? Is, I mean, is that just an abundance of caution? You want to make sure you're not waiving so many security controls that you're doing something dangerous? So for me, and as I said before, I've been doing security for a very long time. So what I have to be able to balance is Are we being prudent in our acceptance of risk? I do not want to rush to failure. And we already know that the adversary is very capable and very interested in taking advantage of any chinks in our armor. So we need to make sure that we get it right. And in fact, a lot of folks will ask me, well, how much time do you want to cut out or what controls do you want to remove? 
my focus is about getting it right and understanding that it is risk management, not risk avoidance. So we will, for some systems, accept a greater degree of risk if the mission impact is sufficient to justify it. But we are not ready right now. Our infrastructure is not ready. Our processes are not ready to drive to a shorter authorization period. Part of the larger initiative that I mentioned, the um, the transformation of our RMF, is not just to get faster for the software, but it's to get faster overall. And as we can automate steps, that is going to help us improve our speed to delivery. Captain Susan Breyer-Joyner is the Cybersecurity Branch Director in the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare. She's back with us in just a few minutes to talk more about the Navy's new RAISED process for IT security approvals. That's next on Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Captain Susan Breyer-Joyner is with us. She's the Cybersecurity Branch Director in the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare as we continue to talk about a new process called RAISED. The Navy is building to streamline its IT security authorization procedures, starting with shipboard IT systems. Understanding the need to get it right and feel good about the process is... Is what right looks like going to vary from application to application, or or how how consistent is this process going to be across everything the Navy does for software development for that afloat environment? Is really what I'm asking. So for the raised process, it will be consistent across a given environment. So for the applications in the Canes ACS environment, the process will be consistent. If we do a version in an enclave in the mill cloud. Anything developed on top of that platform as a service will be consistent within that family of applications. Okay, let's let's return to automation a little bit. Do, do you have any specific ideas about where automation plays in this process and exactly what you'll be automating? So I have a dream, and the dream goes something along these lines. We always need to be able to capture artifacts for auditability to make sure that as we're making our decisions and, and folks come behind to make sure that we are approaching the process in a comprehensive and proper manner, that auditability still needs to be maintained. But ideally, in this future world, we would not have static network diagrams. We would not have static vulnerability scans, we would be able to have our security control assessors look at, here is a live pull of the network as it stands today. Here are where all of the vulnerabilities are. Here's where the mitigations for those vulnerabilities exist, whether it's at the NOC firewall, it's at the DISA firewall. And to be able to, in a near real-time manner, see the actual status of the system. And once we get there and once we get the censoring in place, that leads us to the continuous monitoring piece, which is such an incredibly important element of RMF that not very many people have gotten there yet. But that's the ultimate goal is we want to get away from the static, 
I'm going to look at the system once every three years. Ideally, we should be looking at all of the systems continuously. So if they exceed a left or right par parameter and alarm rings and somebody's able to go look at what caused that alarm, that's where we need to get to. This may be a silly question, but is it much harder to do that sort of continuous monitoring on a destroyer than it is in a data center? That's an interesting question, and I would say it depends, primarily because a destroyer doesn't necessarily have the type of continuous connectivity that we would need in order to be able to probably have the level of censoring we would want right. on that platform. Whereas a data center with its connectivity into the greater backbone is going to have a much higher degree of censoring and the ability to transmit much more information. So while you would think that a destroyer would be maybe easier because it's a smaller platform and possibly less complex, it's the connectivity and the bandwidth piece, which I think would make it a little bit more challenging. I was almost going to say the personnel piece, too, because would you need people who know how to read those sensors and, and respond to those alarm bells, um, you know, on board? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on how we choose to pursue that architecture in the future. Right now, a lot of, um, a lot of the censoring is actually being monitored off-ship because we don't necessarily have the training or the capacity of the personnel on the ship to do that level of monitoring. Now, again, in my happy place, we have a much larger degree of automation, so the sailors aren't running around applying patches manually because they didn't take the first time. So there are a lot of dependencies in the future world of how well do our security systems work without anybody touching them. And if we can get to the point where they are almost self-sustaining, then we might have sufficient manning on board the ships and we would simply have to revise the training track for those individuals. So instead of doing the manual work that computers can do, they would be doing the brain work that people need to do. Right. Um, let me go back to something you said earlier, which is that this is ideally something you prove out afloat and then you can use it in all other aspects of, of Navy networks. Why start afloat? It seems like such a much more complex and difficult environment to work in to do what you're trying to do as opposed to piloting this ashore. Well, and it all starts with that vision of compile to combat in 24 hours, being able to give our tactical forces the flexibility and the agility to build the capabilities they need on the fly because that's our warfighting edge, and they're the ones that are going to need to be able to do that in the absence of reachback support. So we are absolutely pursuing both approaches, but when you listen to the CNO and you listen to the urgency and the just demand for capability at the edge, we've got to figure out how to crack that egg because the shore solution is easier, but that's probably not where we need the agility right now. Once you get to that point where where you're pushing new software capability out 24 hours, you know, within 24 hour cycles, 
How does that start to change the capabilities that sailors have at, at their fingertips while they're underway? Because I, I think the process now really is, if, if you're going to install something new on a ship, you've got to be at a pier, plugged in, physically installing something over a cable, right? Actually, we currently push um, software updates while the ships are underway. It's much more challenging depending on the bandwidth availability, hmm. but it's certainly possible. Having the ability to develop the software on the ship, I think this is going to be somewhat of a niche solution because as our sailors become more sophisticated and understanding, here are all the different data feeds I have available to me, and here's the type of analysis that I need to do. Let me just write a quick script to take care of it so it frees up my time so I can focus on the analysis and not on the data conditioning and rationalization and aggregation and all the things you have to do before you can actually start analysis. I've seen sailors and their innovation. I I cannot even predict the way that they're going to take this new capability and they're going to leverage it to make amazing things happen when they're underway. I look back at when chat started being used as an unauthorized application back in, was it early 2000s? wasn't authorized to be on the network, but sailors are like, look, we can use it to do this, this, and this. And we're giving them this brand new capability to say, innovate. And they are, I think, going to grab that opportunity with both hands and they're going to amaze us. If this all goes well and you start expanding it to, to other, you know, shoreside infrastructure, I mean, let's, let's imagine that that's two or three years from now. And by that point, you've got um, a lot more riding on cloud infrastructure that's already authorized. If that's the case, how much easier does it make this whole job if you're if you're inheriting a lot more from the underlying infrastructure and not having to certify everything over and over again? Yes. So I anticipate a couple of things. One is we have to drive towards consolidated infrastructures, whether they are in the cloud, on the ship. We cannot afford for different programs to continue to build separate sets of infrastructures. So consolidating into that one platform for everybody to build upon benefits us financially and it benefits us from the authorization standpoint. That being said, there will always be examples of systems that we want to keep distinct. So I think it will make it easier, but I don't think that we're going to completely move away from independent systems that cannot necessarily participate in this kind of construct. Okay, just to start to wrap up here, what what is the what's next? What's the timeline here? When when do you think uh, these this the, the raised process will start become start to become available to folks throughout the fleet? Based on our timeline right now, it looks like late fall is a is when we anticipate the raised process being available widely. We are looking for test cases today to take through the manual validation of the process, and we anticipate starting that in the spring. This is something that is very exciting. We want to get it out to the fleet as quickly as possible. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is just one of several subcomponents of a larger initiative, all intended to make it easier and faster for programs to make it through the authorization process. 
Yeah, and I, we haven't really mentioned this yet, but I just want to be super specific here. This this is really not designed to apply to all software development for the fleet, right? It's it's things that are fair fair to say things that are more being done in house with organic labor using agile processes. Is that about right? That's about right. It's we're looking for containerized applications that would operate in the Canes ACS environment. If you meet those constraints, then that is what the RAISE process is built for. We are looking to expand it more broadly, but first we have to make our way through the initial test cases. Right. My, my, my main point is if you're, a, if you're a big contractor working on a major Navy software development contract, this is probably not something you need to be thinking about, at least yet. I would encourage the contractors to become familiar with, with the race process. The documentation's already out there because we do think that within the next year, I anticipate within the next year, that we are going to expand it to the cloud ashore environment. As we said a little bit earlier in the conversation, the other services are working on very similar problems and I think making similar progress on, on RMF challenges. Who are you talking to? Who have you borrowed ideas from as, as you've uh, started to develop this raised process? So we are broadly reaching out to anybody who has any ideas. I know before I came on board, the team was working with the Air Force to learn about their continuous authorization process. I know they worked with Department of Defense to look at their software assurance process. And we've also looked at industry best practices for uh, development security operations. We continue that partnership with the other services. I've been working very closely with the Marine Corps to learn how they're currently streamlining their process, as well as the Air Force and how they're getting to continuous monitoring, which is very interesting. So we have learned from them. We're sharing our lessons learned and inviting them to participate in our workshops, and we look forward to continuing this partnership in the future. Captain Susan Breyer Joyner is the Cybersecurity Branch Director in the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare. She joined us to talk about the Rapid Assess and Incorporate Software Engineering in a Day or RAISED process. It's the Navy's effort to streamline the risk management framework for its afloat IT systems. Short break here, and when we come back, the Vice Commander of Naval Supply Systems Command joins us to talk about a new approach to supply chain management in the Navy. That's next on Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbia. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbia. The Navy's global supply chain for parts and other supplies is vastly complicated. As it stands now, parts of it have too much inventory and others have too little. To help solve that problem, Naval Supply Systems Command is turning to a private sector concept called an Integrated Supply Chain Control Tower. It uses the Navy's vast data warehouses plus machine learning to build better forecasts of what's needed, where, and when. Kurt Wendelkin is our guest for the second half of the hour this week. He's the vice commander of NAVSUP. He talked with me about where the control tower idea came from and what the Navy's hoping to achieve. In commercial industry, the supply chain control tower is used to track parts in a system, and it sends an alarm 
when there's a downstream shortage that's going to impact production or an anticipated downstream shortage that's going to impact production. So for us, the way the Navy does business is that, you know, it all starts with a program office and a program manager, and they they are at the, the pinnacle of the sustainment of a particular weapon system. And that program manager needs to ensure that the Navy's got a sufficient number of that weapon system available and ready to fight. And that objective is easy to understand and is pretty clear, but it's difficult to ensure. So the idea of the control tower is that it enables the program manager to use the primary lever that they have to ensure readiness, which is providing funding to the right level for each of the readiness generators. So maintenance, repair of repairable parts, engineering, and brand new spare parts for the right level. But it's kind of unclear what the right level is. There's a real integration effect that is needed, and a there's also a delay with these different kinds of inputs where they're not always available as quickly as someone might need them. So um, the control tower addresses this problem. The control tower is a visibility and simulation tool, and it gives that program manager visibility into the flow of parts and repairs throughout the system that contribute to the readiness of that weapon system. In addition, the control tower has a simulation capability um, that enables it to forecast if there will be a shortage of a particular part in the future that's gonna impact readiness. So simulation isn't really something new. Simulation is something that NAVSUP has done, I would say, 40 years maybe. Um, so simulation has been a key part of how we've forecasted what parts are needed and when. But the new innovation of the control tower is the simulation combined with a new degree of integration across a wide set of data to give program managers a new level of insight. Um, and so an analogy that I think is useful is the one of a convenience store. A retailer at a convenience store sends an order to a distributor, and that distributor sends the order to a factory. The store owner, the distributor, and the factory are all each independently making their own forecasts based on their history of orders and trends of new orders. But when demand goes up or down, it can cause a problem because of the lag time it takes the store owner order to reach the factory, and then for that order to come back to the retail store, the store owner or distributor usually ends up with too much or too little of what they need on their store shelves. And so it also makes that store owner either to dramatically over or under order to get rid of inventory to make up for the gap. And that's exactly the problem with our supply chain, except it's much more complex. Our sustainment chain for a weapon system has many parts of our supply chain making forecasts based on historical demand. And in some places, we have too much inventory, and in other places, we may not have enough inventory. So using the control tower, we've done two things to address this problem. We're integrating data from each of the different parts of the supply chain and putting those into a single simulation instead of the individual simulations that we used to do or others would do on our behalf. Using the single simulation, we're now able to give a target to each part of the sustainment supply chain as opposed to each part of the supply chain guessing with separate forecasts. In addition, 
we've taken historical data forecasts, which are normal forecasts, to use machine learning um, in our forecast. And what the machine learning does is it uses algorithms to take into account that will predict changes in weapon system usage that we may not have captured through historical demand. So I'm, I'm guessing none of this really makes sense to even try unless you're pretty darn confident in the quality of the data that's coming into the system. And, and I'm going to guess you probably weren't so confident 40 years ago when you were doing simulations. So if I'm right about that, what's what's changed recently to enable all this? So uh, you hear it talked about in the media, uh, you know, the quote unquote big data, but we, we are now... Uh, taking advantage of very, very large data stores that different members of the sustainment team have. So Navair has data. We have our own data. Uh, an original equipment manufacturer, the, the person that originally made that weapon system has data. The people that are repairing uh, weapon systems, both in the Navy and outside of the Navy, they have all that data. And then using very, very large data stores that are able to very rapidly process those, we're able to take all that data together and then use it to make these predictions, even where there are cases where the data quality may not be perfect. Because you have so much data, you're able to kind of smooth the impact that those errors would have had in the past. So maybe you can say a little bit about the tool itself. I think you're only in a pilot phase at the moment. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But but is it a, something you were able to just grab off the shelf that's already being used in industry, or did it require some new development here? So the actual control tower is a pilot. The data stores themselves are not really pilots. Both us and Navair have different uh, data stores where we pull data to do these simulations. And so the one in, in that we use here is called uh, NDP or Navy Data Platform. That's the one that NavSup runs. And then NavAir has a bunch that we're using particularly here. And that we've, we've had a developer helping us uh, develop the supply chain control tower. So, yeah, it's, it's just a pilot. We're looking to, uh, to expand the concept because it's really working out well to, to other aviation weapon systems and then to roll it out to the rest of the weapon systems that NAVSUP supports. Can you tell me a little bit more about what leads you to think that it's working out well? So we've had examples where it's worked, and particularly was with the F-18 Super Hornet Initiative. So Navy, along with the rest of DOD, received guidance from the Secretary of Defense that we were to achieve 80% readiness on our aviation weapon systems for F-18 Hornets. That was uh, manifested in what we refer to as 341. So 341 Super Hornets was the target that we were set. So we built that first control tower for the Super Hornets. And in creating that control tower, we're already seeing how to close the gaps that show up in the example that we gave previously. We're also able to give better targets to the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA, who helps us with piece parts for repair and through that, um, we're, we're able to improve the organic repair that Navy's doing to F-18 components. And we're also updating our contracts with the commercial repair entities in order to better stabilize the system. The F-18 control tower that we've piloted, we're starting to turn that to other weapon systems. And, um, and, and we suspect we will also be able to do similar things with them that we've done with the F-18. 
Just to clarify on something, is is this, I mean, are there going to be distinct control towers for every system, or is is there one that covers the entire enterprise? So I think the um, eventually we will get to the place where, where we have a single control tower that has all the weapon systems together in one place. Right now, we just have the one. And as we expand, we're going to build on that. And so, yeah, the intent is definitely not to have individual weapon systems, but some place where um, where we can go and look at all the weapon systems that that we want to support. And then folks who are more deeply involved in supporting a particular weapon system can use filters and different things to kind of focus their attention on whatever is being presented on their computer screen. But at the same time, it sounds like even with that more integrated approach, the end customer for all this is, 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 or the main supported customer is really that individual program manager that you mentioned at the beginning. So it's the, it's the program manager, but ultimately it's the fleet. You know, we, we are part of the program manager's team supporting the fleet. But at the end of all this, you know, we want the fleet to have fewer back orders and we want them to perceive a more, a smoother supply system that's supporting them when they need things to uh, to keep their weapon systems up. In the future, we don't want the fleet to even have to deal with the back order in the first place. And I think um, as this initiative develops, I think we'll get much better at predicting when we are going to have a need and we'll have that material available to meet the need. Kurt Wendelkin is the Vice Commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. He's back with us to talk more about the Navy's new supply chain control tower after one more break. This is On DOD, on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serviv. Back on Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with Kurt Wendelkin, the Vice Commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. He's joining us to talk about the integrated supply chain control tower the Navy's starting to implement for its aviation systems. You've mentioned the readiness benefits of this, and I'm wondering if it plays in clearly with financial audit considerations, too, because that's obviously been a big priority for the acting secretary is to make sure the Navy knows where all its stuff is. Yeah, so um, if I think about audit, I think the place where it will help us the most is buying the right material that we need, not ending up with excesses of material on the shelves that then become an audit headache where we're keep trying to keep track of material that isn't really moving very much. We're not really sure why we have it. So really the, the that readiness focus about making sure we have the right material when we need it and we're able to push it out to customers will help audit because I think it'll be much easier to do housekeeping and, and keep our inventories in order. As far as designing how this, how this will actually work, I mean, where, where did you, where did you get help with ideas? Is there anywhere else in government where folks are were working on this or are there particular private sector examples that you borrowed from? Yeah, there, I, I think on this, we really leaned on the private sector. So, um, the NAVSUP reform initiative that we've talked about previously with you and with others, um, we, we started that about two years ago, and we've had uh, a variety of different folks helping us understand how private industry does this and then uh, help us translate whatever private industry is doing to the particular needs of our supply chain. Because I, I think one of the things that you can't really overstated is that the complexity and the number of different weapon systems that Navy has to support is really kind of unprecedented. You'd be very hard pressed 
to find a commercial entity that has that many different kinds of things that are all supported at the same time. But those concepts about having a control tower, integrating the data, using machine learning, those were all things that uh, folks were helping us with um, bring bring private sector concepts into government. Can we drill down on that AI machine learning just just a little bit? Can you can you mm-hmm. say a little bit more specifically how how advances on that front are, are going to help you here? Yeah. So what um, normally when we when we do a forecast, a model is built, right? And it, and it, there's a certain outcome that we're trying to achieve with that model, and we run that model. What machine learning does is that when you run the model, if there are things that are different that or that the model didn't really anticipate using machine learning the model adapts itself for lack of a better word um so each time that you that you run that you know the model gets slightly better as opposed to a static model where you build a model and you probably don't revisit the model every time you run it uh so and again that that was really a key takeaway for me so we had met with a very large chocolate producer that is uh located nearby to us. And they also run uh, SAP, which we do, uh, like much of Navy does for supply chain. And they used SAP and also a machine learning model to back up whatever um, was built into their SAP instance. So we really took that learning and brought it in-house. And and so far with the F-18 example, I think it's it's showing us where our model was good, but the machine learning model appears to be better. And then the machine learning model learns, which is which is also goodness. Um, before we wrap up, I want to go back to the, the data issues just a little bit. You, you talked about how much Navy data the system is ingesting and processing, but, but are, are you also reliant on data feeds from suppliers and vendors to do this well? So I think it's mostly government data right now. We are working with our suppliers to further pull their data in. I think that's something new for us and also something new for them because of course for them their their data could be a competitive advantage for them. Sure. So they want to make sure that they're that they're really protecting. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say yet that we have full bi-directional data flows from all of our suppliers yet. We're again we're we're kind of taking that as one-offs with them. And I think the future is clear that the more data that we can share with each other, the better the result will be. This may be hard to answer because it's obviously going to depend on on how the pilots go. But do you have a sense of how quickly you might be able to expand this to where you do get more of that enterprise view that we talked about? I think it can be expanded relatively quickly. The original control tower was built, so it, it could be adapted. I think when we were working on that, we really had the idea that you know, the F-18 issue was a problem that needed to be solved very quickly, but that we really would like to do this with all the weapon systems that we support. So I don't, I don't think it's really um, I don't think it's really a, a substantial challenge to get that rolled out to other weapon systems. I think the biggest challenge will be different warfare domains have different kinds of data and we we're going to have to work through that with them. But I, yeah, I think it. I think it's a relatively quick process to stand up control towers for other weapon systems, or to add them into a larger control tower. Yeah, you mentioned that the F eighteen one kind of worked because Navair does have so much data. Are, are other portions of the fleet postured as well as they are to, to to start feeding data into a control tower like this? 
I think we're working with the other parts of the Navy on that. I I think um, it it was particularly easy with us in Navir because we were, we were both moving out in that direction. I I think it's still a little early to call to see what other kinds of data are out there. I think the good news is because of Navy ERP, there is a lot of Navy data across the Syscoms because all the Syscoms are on ERP. So I think a lot of the ERP data is there. Uh, not not sure about other kinds of uh, weapon system failure data quite yet. Yeah, you completely anticipated my, my last question there, which was on, on Navy ERP. How much has that modernization enabled all this? I mean, it, 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 I think it did did a lot to get you guys out of a lot of legacy systems that might not have been able to support something like this, right? Yeah, I think um, I think that's really a critical point, right? That the putting the syscoms on ERP is enabling this, and really the the point of an ERP is really the data. So you can understand your business, which is why companies do ERP. So um, it's helped a lot. And again, NDP has helped uh, pull data from ERP, uh, and it's available to all the syscoms to to data mine and do different kinds of analytics drills against uh, data that has come from Navy ERP. Kurt Wendelkin is the Vice Commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. He joined me to talk about the Integrated Supply Chain Control Tower. NAVSUP and NAVAIR are building out for the Navy's aviation platforms, as you heard, starting with the F-18. Earlier, we talked with Captain Susan Breyer Joyner in the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare about how the Navy's streamlining the risk management framework for the IT systems and software on its ships. If you missed that conversation, this week's full program, as always, is at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen in our podcast feed. If you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.